Welcome to the Race Haven Radio Show and Podcast, your source for solutions-focused dialogue about race in America, with your host, Scott Speed. My name is Dr. Scott Speed, and I am the facilitator of the dialogue. This is episode 25 of Race Haven, and today I am joined by a special guest, Daylon Montgomery. <clears throat> Daylon, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Scott. How about yourself? I am doing wonderful, and I'm very excited that you've uh, joined me today and uh, our perspective show. Uh, I'm really excited to gain your perspective uh, on various uh, top on the various topics that we're going to discuss today, and um, again, I appreciate you carving out some time to be with me here today. No, sure, I'm excited to be here. I'm always happy to talk, and even more happy to talk in a venue like this. Thank you. So, Dalen, I'm I'm in a different location than normal. So, how's my sound? Do I sound okay? Ah, you sound fine to me. How do I sound? All right. You sound good, loud and clear. If you hear any background noise or anything, let me know uh, as we proceed. But I appreciate that feedback. So, um, so as we get into it, I'd like to first tell our listeners, you know, how we met and uh, how you came onto the show, uh, how you, you know, became a guest on the show. And uh, Daylin is a member of the Race Haven Community Dialogue uh, Facebook group, and that's where we met initially. And I'm not sure. He'll, I'll ask Dale, and he'll share with us how he got to race haven. I always like to learn that as well. But also, in addition to that, you know, uh, after a few months, of, I've noticed that Dalen was interacting, um, you know, on the in the group. I noticed that he also had a, a blog, and he posted some articles. Um, we friended each other on Facebook, and he posted a few articles. And you know, I read some of his uh, his blog posts, and I found him to be, you know, a very uh, interesting person. I found his perspective to be very interesting. And it just so happened that um, Dalen reached out to me uh, probably about a month ago and, and, you know, expressed the same sentiments, and he thought that I was interesting as well. And he asked if he could uh, interview me for his uh, four potential uh, blog posts, and I said, sure. So we had a chance to talk, and I had a chance to get to know him better, and I said, man, I think you would be a great guest on the Race Haven podcast. I would really like to share your perspective with our listeners. And, you know, he obliged. So here we are today. I'm excited to get into it. Uh, so, Dalen, just if you don't mind, could you share how you came upon the Race Haven uh, Community Dialogue on Facebook? Sure, yeah. It's, uh, uh, I found you through the podcast first. I'm always looking for new podcasts, either for my commute or in those moments of ambition where I think I'm going to go jog and get in shape once again. Uh, I'm always looking for something to listen to. And so I, I listen to a lot of blogs dealing with history, economics, or American black-white race relations. So under those sort of searches is how I found Race Haven and listened to a few episodes while I was trying to get in shape, and, and I liked it. So you had talked on the podcast about the Facebook group, and I'm, I'm pretty active on social media and online, period. So 
I just got connected that way. It's a subject that is something I'm, I'm passionate about and always looking to learn more and to to do more with. So that's how you got me. Awesome. I love it. I love knowing that um, this whole, you know, network thing works. You know, you put some info out there and you never know who you're going to attract. It's really exciting, and uh, I'm so happy that you found us and that you've been, you know, participating and engaging with us. I really appreciate your contributions, your thoughts. Um, and, again, I want to take an opportunity to share some of them, you know, with our listeners. So, you know, typically we do a dialogue show, but today is going to be more of an interview format uh, where I like to, um, you know, just get to know you a little bit better and, and allow our listeners to get to know you a little, a little bit better. Um, and I'm sure that we'll, um, you know, uncover some really neat things and our listeners will gain some perspective from it. So the way I like to start, you know, with all guests is I like to ask, because this is a show dealing with race relations in America, uh, what is your ethnicity and where did you grow up? All right. So I, uh, <laughs> it's funny, uh, I, I deal with issues of diversity and race uh, in a lot of aspects of my life. And I identify with, and I'll explain why I'm chuckling in a minute. I am a middle-class, middle-aged, heterosexual white male, uh, which is kind of the the historical harbinger of all power and privilege. And over my experience, I've I've realized, man, how much that's true. I grew up in Salt or a suburb of Salt Lake City, Utah, and lived in the same house in the same neighborhood. Uh, from birth up until the age of 19. So I don't know if any of you have been to Sandy, Utah, but it is so, so homogenous. Everyone's the same religion. For the most part, everyone's the same racial background. It's one of those places where we'll, people argue it's diverse because you've got like one representative from every subset of society but really, most everyone is white, same religion. There's no uh, no perce- perceivable poverty, right? So everyone is pretty solidly middle class. And in fact, in mo- I think in my high school boundaries, there weren't even any apartment complexes. So when it comes to my experience growing up, that was it. Grew up solidly uh, Republican conservative as far as ideology. I am because everyone asks this when they find I'm from Utah. I am Mormon. I was raised that way, and I'm still very much a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints today. So that's my thumbnail background. Okay. Awesome. And and thanks for that uh, context there. And so let me ask you this. With everything you just shared, how did your up- upbringing impact your views on race in America pre pre-moving away at 19 and experiencing other places? Sure. Um, I, I, one of the, uh, not to jump ahead, but one of the things that moving away really illustrated is how wrong I was about race in America without me being one of the bad guys. And what I mean by that, to answer your original question, is most of my experience, and this is, say, early 80s, mid-80s of coming of age, uh, most everybody was white, right? There was a little bit of everybody else. Uh, I was like everybody there is Republican and everyone there is Mormon. So we had this sort of Western bootstrap ideology where your situation in life is a result of your work ethic and your moral fortitude, meaning if you try 
and work hard and you don't make big moral mistakes and you're going to be okay. Uh, I was taught in schools, I went to public school, uh, and I think we had a pretty good public school education and we, I think I even knew who Nat Turner was and people of that nature. But the, at the end of the day, I think the message I was taught was that racism was over. Right? I never heard people calling anyone the N-word. Uh, we read in the history books that racism was bad and Martin Luther King fought that battle and won. And now we need to treat everybody the same and equal and be friends with each other. And that was all reaffirmed with my religious upbringing. In Mormonism, there is this theology that God, or we call him our Father in Heaven, is quite literally the father of all humanity. So God and humans are the same species, if you will, which means that everybody on earth is literally our brother and sister. We are the same family. Uh, and so with that understanding, and there's many scriptures in our theology that back up the idea that uh, God is no respecter of persons, meaning like, all are the same to God, black, white, bond, free, uh, all those sorts of things. So we, we should act as God would have us treat our family. And so all of these things really okay. kind of, uh, that set the framework of how I viewed race in society. But that being said, okay. so I, it was bad. Like we all knew, you don't use the N-word, that's bad. You don't think that somebody else because of the color of skin is different mm -hmm. than you. So that's, that's the framework I started with. Okay, awesome. So with that being said, um, again, from uh, our previous conversation and also from reading a few of your blog posts, I know that you uh, eventually moved away and went to Atlanta. And it seems like your experience in Atlanta really um, changed a lot of things for you in terms of how you saw uh, the world in general as well as through the lens of race relations in America the lens of poverty in America, I believe your time in Atlanta really, you know, uh, impacted that in a major way. Please share some of, some of that uh, context with us and tell us what neighborhood, I believe it was in the, uh, were you in the West End of Atlanta? <laughs> I, you your, I was your mission? in the West End, in the SWATs, East Point. Uh, so yeah. it, at 19 at and, and just time, so you, before it, you get into it, I'm, hold on really quick, I'm sorry, before you get into it, I just want to yeah, give a little yeah. context to our listeners. I I'm actually in Atlanta, uh, and I'm not sure how often I mention that, but I'm in Atlanta, and I used to teach in East Point. Um, so Daylin and I connect on that, and I'm also, but I'm from Philadelphia, and you'll hear a little bit more about that later, how we also have a connection there. But uh, I just wanted to add that context. So yeah, go ahead and share some thoughts about Atlanta, because uh, when you name those neighborhoods, they, you know, they resonate with me. Yeah, sure. No, so I, I went to Atlanta as a Mormon missionary. Those are those guys you see riding bikes wearing white shirts and ties and name tags. Uh, and if you aren't familiar with what they do, their, their job, it's a proselyting missionary. So that we'd go around and knock on doors and talk with people that wanted to learn more about our theology uh, with the idea that potentially they might want to join. So our job was to find those people and to teach those people. So, but when you're, when you sign up to go, you don't choose where you're going to go. The church finds if you're eligible and then they tell you where you're going to go. So I went from Sandy, Utah to Atlanta, Georgia to spend two years. And it really flipped my world upside down uh, in a number of different ways. So I spent two years uh, just on the streets for seven days a week, knocking on people's doors in East Point in the West End of Atlanta, 
a little bit down into Forest Park, which is down just south of the airport of Atlanta. I lived on Bankhead Highway, which is just west Atlanta for, oh, almost a year. And then I spent a little while in Marietta as well, which is the most suburban I got. And this was in 1995. So the west end of Atlanta in 1995 wasn't just a predominantly black area, but it was in this height of Afrocentric uh, living, right? So that's Uh all sorts of bookstores and street vendors and everything out there was (laughs) a little bit like what uh, Arrested Development was singing about five years after the fact. So it, it was... Right. I, I can't tell And how, how old were you? Different. I can go into how is the different one. What's that? How old were you at that time? 19. So this would have been equivalent to most people's, say, freshman year of college. I, before I went out as a missionary, I spent one quarter, this is before semesters, one quarter away at college as an art major and then left college to go to, go to Atlanta for two years. Okay. So please continue. <laughs> well, I guess the, the first thing I learned was I had, when you go from a place that's uh, so homogenous, including race and religion, and go to a place that's kind of, uh, it, it's homogenous, but on the flip side, meaning everywhere I went, it was nothing but black people, including on the billboards. Every time I came into someone's house that the TV was on, it was like Martin and Moesha, we're on television with all black casts. Uh, it's the first time I'd even thought of the idea or was confronted with the image of a black Santa Claus or uh, everybody had those pictures up in their house of Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper, except everyone was black. So it was this place where nobody was Mormon, where I came from, a place where everyone was Mormon. Everyone was black, or where I came from, everyone was white. And I was just kind of dropped into that world and it it was somewhat unfacilitated, right? So there was no cultural training that goes into this missionary program. Uh, There's some theological training, so I knew my doctrines, but then you're just dropped on the street to go talk to people. So in that world that looked so different than what I was used to, I spent that time just talking with the people that live there, trying to help me interpret that world. Uh, And it... It was the first time I not only came in contact with people that had a different, uh, I'd even say style of living, but people who had a different philosophical outlook on life. First time I came in firsthand contact with uh, generational poverty in great numbers as opposed to outliers. Uh, it was such an education in as far as experience goes. Awesome. awesome. I feel like I was talking for a whole so, bunch. I don't know how much you want me to just keep going. Well, well, actually, that, that's fine. I want to ask you a question because um, something that stands out to me is that when we spoke, you said that, you know, your experience there uh, was much different than one of your partners who came from Utah with you. Uh, you said that, you know, his experience, it was almost like his experience there confirmed all of the quote-unquote negative stereotypes about what it means to be an inner city, low income to working class, African-American, whereas you took something different away. And I wanted to know if you can provide some context about why you think that happened. But I'm sorry, well, first, what was that, the difference between how you took the experience versus how he took it? 
and then also why you think that happened. Yeah, I, I guess I'll start with the why because I think people are different and you, you interpret things through whatever lens you're wearing, right? So why somebody would interpret things different than me, I'm, I'm not always sure, right? They're, everyone's their own animal. Uh, but it, it really taught me that experience alone isn't enough for people to come to a greater understanding of things. So, for instance, I, I came in contact with a lot of people who were not only not doing well economically, but just seemed like they weren't trying, right? So if you spend a lot of time in poverty, there's people that are – or you see a couple guys that look like they have money, and a lot of people are asking us for money all the time. And you're, you're signed in pairs. And so I would be with other people that say, like, look, these people are lazy. They don't have jobs. And they keep asking me for money, right? So it's just like uh, everybody on TV or some people back home had said, this is, this is how black people are, right? And it, I could see how it would look that way to this person, the situation. But when you really started talking to people and asking questions rather than just looking at things and making assumptions from your framework – uh, I started to learn different things. When I started to ask people their story of how they got to where they are, what they want to do, what their hopes and dreams are, it, it was a little bit different. And, and it, it's not all sunny. I'd never heard the word cracker until I moved to living on Bankhead Highway. And it'd uh-huh. always be, you know, me and my companion would be walking down the street, and there'd always be just a pack of uh, seven-year-olds following us around, and there'd always be the brave one that would yell cracker, <laughs> and then they'd all run off giggling. Right? So – to me, I mean, kids hear and learn things, and they test each other. So it showed this was people learned that we were harmless, so kids would test each other, test us that way. Uh, and not everybody that was with me thought that was cool or interesting. They thought, see, look, this just shows that people hate us, as opposed to realizing that, you know, when I was a kid, I was stupid too. Kids do stupid things. That's what they do developmentally. Um, so right. I, not, not everybody who went through the same experience I did came out with the same uh, same understanding afterwards. What really, really helped me do was start to reassess things I thought. So, for example, before I get too carried away, but just I'll explain. Like, uh, when I grew up in Utah, it was and started coming of age is when NWA and what people called gangster rap started first to kind of cross over right. into suburban white world. Right, And so there were a lot of guys I knew that were trying to emulate that world, which it never made sense to me. I didn't understand it musically, and I didn't understand the message they were talking, especially the people I knew that listened to it were a bunch of suburban white kids that were out trying to act tough and act hard when I knew their lives weren't that uh-huh. hard. And and so I sort of thought that, that I dismissed that whole genre of music because uh, I didn't get it, and I thought it was ridiculous. And then when I moved to Atlanta, this is when Outkast and, and Goody Mob especially was really – making a splash in, I was in their hometown. So even though I wasn't really listening to music, I heard their songs all the time. And I started to hear, uh, if you go back and listen to Goody Mob's Soul Food album, where CeeLo's verses especially is explaining uh, people's reality. And I was standing there looking at it and things started to click on. Oh, this is what they're talking about. This makes much more sense. It doesn't look and feel like what I grew up in when I heard this other things that this grew out of. And so I started to really think, huh, maybe I was wrong in what I thought because now it makes sense over here. It just didn't make sense where I came from. So I, I, and I would do other things like I would, when I was, especially when I was in Marietta, we'd go knock on doors and 
19-year-olds that are trying to find people who want to listen to will generally just gravitate to whoever will talk to you because we got told where right. to go most of the time, right? So uh, in suburban Marietta, uh, there was a neighborhood. It was all single-family homes, uh, but it was a black neighborhood, and people would talk to us because I, I found that most in the black community, it seemed as a cultural norm that no matter what your economic status or what your a religious dominate, denomination was you would talk to somebody, uh, you would talk to church folk. You were okay to talk to religion uh-huh. and it was respectful. And so folks would talk to us, but then we'd go to our local congregation of Mormons who were mostly white and they would tell us to stay out of that neighborhood because it was dangerous and bad. And right. that really didn't, didn't click with my experience. I'm like, why are these folks telling me that to stay out of this neighborhood because it's dangerous and bad and I'm going to get hurt and that I shouldn't go there and they're not going to go there with me when I've been there, and this is all people with families and jobs just trying to make it. So I started to, for the first time, even within my own religious faith that had framed how I saw race in what I thought was a positive way. I saw people that shared that faith acting in some pretty blatant racist ways. And when I tried to call them on it, they would just say, well, you don't get it because you're not from here. And so I really had to start reassessing how I viewed the world as a, when it came to race. Interesting. So, I guess what you said in terms of how people are different, I mean, it's just kind of one of those things where it really is what it is because you and you and your uh, companions uh, or your partners who were out there with you, uh, you had the same or some very similar experiences, but for some reason it seems like you were a little bit more open-minded and intellectually curious about understanding the reasons why the conditions were the, what they were and maybe the reasons why the people reacted to you the way they did, and maybe you were a little bit more empathetic um, in those ways where it seemed like some of the people with you may have been more so prone to go along with whatever the stereotypical narrative was because if you look around, you know, a lot of what they saw, what both of you saw confirmed stereotypes, but for some reason you were able to look beyond the stereotype. And as I'm talking, I'm just thinking out loud and, and just really processing that myself. And I just find it interesting. And I guess it's just something that, you know, we're all different. And, and I can honestly say, you know, in dealing with, um, you know, African-American people, um, you know, we all, you know, I'm very intellectually curious in that way in terms of the history and, you know, why things are the way they are in the world socially and things like that politically. And there's people who just aren't. So I guess I can put it there as well, where there's some African-American people that just aren't that much interested in, you know, social or economic justice and things like that. And, you know, maybe they don't know certain things. So I guess I can kind of place it there and they kind of fall along the same lines with, um, you know, going along with, with the various stereotypes, et cetera. Not just about, well, not just about European-Americans, but also, you know, I, I hear a lot of African-Americans who go along with the same stereotypes against uh, other African Americans as well, so that's very interesting. Um, so, one of the things that um, you shared with me, and um, let's see where I want to go with this next. I guess you shared with me that your time in Atlanta also uh, you met your wife, and your wife is an African American woman um, who's a Democrat, and you grew up a conservative Republican uh, in a homogenous European American world. So I want to know what that was like. How was it, you know, meeting? How was it trying to uh, put those two worlds together? And how was it accepted back home? Sure, sure. Uh, 
so I'll correct one thing only because if there's anybody who shares my faith and experience, uh, their their antenna probably went up when you said that. So missionaries don't date at all, like zero. So okay. I didn't actually meet my wife while I was a missionary in Atlanta. I finished my two years and I went back to Utah. I went to college and I started working summer jobs to pay for school. And uh, it was that three years after I got home, I took a summer job back in Atlanta because I liked it there and I knew the place where so I went back. And that's when I met my wife. So I was in Atlanta. I was no longer a missionary. I was a couple of years removed. Uh, and I, I met this girl in church. So one of the things that really, I'd say, helped us uh, help facilitate our relationship or helped us relate to each other was she had already become a member of my faith maybe a year before I met her. So she was uh, a black okay. woman, which usually in these discussions distracts everyone because people – for some reason, don't think those exist. I can tell you they do. Uh, <laughs> right. But, but when it came to that experience, I mean, it, us dating was a was a whole new education. I don't think it would have worked if one we didn't have religion as common ground, and two, if okay. I as a white guy didn't already have some experience in her world. So when we first started uh, dating, or I would show up to pick her up, or you know normal thing you come to the house and she's getting ready she's not ready and you have to hang out for the family all awkwardly it, it probably <laughs> took a solid month and a half month and a half to two months of me hanging out in the house waiting for her to finish her hair before anybody actually spoke to me right it was, right. It was so awkward everyone and she likes to laugh because she's a good looking girl and she used to date a lot so there would be all kinds of dudes coming through the house uh so i apparently got the same treatment most folks did uh, but at this time, I didn't know all that, you know. I don't, I don't know how people are right. acting. But everyone was super suspicious of me until I made a joke at one time and people actually laughed, and, and that, that broke the ice. But it took us a while to get there. Um, as opposed to when we were both back in Utah. So we dated for a summer or so. I went back to school. We dated long distance. And then she transferred out to the University of Utah where I was studying and we kept dating there, but so when her when she met my family and my friends, it was really the opposite, where everyone was super welcoming and uh, really went out of their way and fell over themselves to make sure she felt welcome. Um, which once again, at its face, <laughs> would would kind of give you one idea of how people act if you made our two reactions as stereotypes. Uh, but they're still uh -huh. both really problematic. Meaning, I, I think my, my wife found living in Utah, where she was used to a very black world, going to a world that was incredibly white, where, where people tended to kind of treat her well. She started to feel a little bit like she was in a zoo, where like everybody was observing okay. her and watching her all the time. She was an exotic attraction. And it right. really, she found it, found it hard really getting to know people because she was a black girl as opposed to just herself, who she was used to being. People would ask her to repeat right. words because they thought she had a southern accent or they liked the way she talked. And, I mean, that's it's fun to get attention a little while, especially because she likes attention. But it starts to get a little tiring after a while when you start to question, like, where that attention is coming from, right? It's people don't really right. know you. They, they're just entertained by what you are. And that gets real old real fast. Sure. Interesting. 
And did did her family eventually warm up to you? Was there ever, ever any resentment or any anything that was uncomfortable in any way outside of the silence? Uh, no. I mean, we eventually uh, we we get along fine. There's there's still we we bump into different things that that my life has taught me, and this is part of the reason why I started to become more vocal because I've realized I have a not just an experience, but my experience has given me access to perspectives that most people don't get because the black and white worlds really don't cross over in meaningful ways very often. Like normally we'll go to school together, we'll work together, but we don't live, eat, and play together. We don't really share our homes. So I get along great with her family. I, I love them. They love me. Right? I've been married for 16, going on 17 years now. So we've, we've been around. I've got to know these folks. Uh, but still, we, I'm still like my wife and my little family, we're stuck between two worlds that still don't cross over. So we'll find little things where it'll be obvious that one group or the other really has no understanding or experience of what the other group is. So both of us will get the, uh, pandering statements from respective family or friends saying that one of us is not like the other. So I remember bowling with my in-laws. So a whole bunch of black folks bowling in the west end of Atlanta, nothing but black people in the bowling alley. And one of her sisters, like, complained about the music they were playing. It was all I, – I wasn't even paying attention because there was all this new wave 80s music, which was my music. I was I was into it. And she right. said out loud out of nowhere, why are they playing this white music? They know there's not one single white person in here. And I looked at her, and she goes, ah, oh, you don't count. <laughs> which I know what she meant. Right, right. Say, but I was kind of like, actually, I am pretty white, like – my experience in my marriage has not changed that fact. I am who I am. And that goes both ways. Right. So there there are little yeah. things that pop up on the regular and have continued. None of them are these glaring, horrific things for the most part. Uh, but they they just help to illustrate uh, how these two worlds really don't overlap. I should I should add, my, I had a step-grandfather uh, who wouldn't attend our wedding because I was marrying a black girl. Uh but okay. I, I was never that close to him, but it just helped illustrate there there have been little bumps uh, that we just kind of keep walking past. And I think everybody who's in an interracial relationship of significance will come across those, but we tend to just kind of keep moving. Sure, sure. Um, that's that's great perspective. Thanks for sharing that. Um, so with that being said, I wanted to ask you next, what attracted you to become interested in race relations in Atlanta, I'm sorry, not in Atlanta, in America, in the way that you are from our conversation before, um, you know, I've noticed that, you know, it's become, um, you know, even you said at the beginning of this podcast, it's something that you took an interest in. Um, and I may be, maybe answering, and I'm thinking about it, I mean, you may have already answered that based on your experience in Atlanta and then also marrying an African-American woman. Um, but I know you write on topics and things like that. Would you say that just your life in general and the intersection of your experiences and being in that world a little bit because of your, your marriage, um, has that caused you to be a little bit more vigilant? Because it's not just that you're interested in it. I know that you actively, you know, are interested. You research it. You read. You write. You seek out. You actively seek out diverse perspectives. Um, so could you add a little context to that for me? Sure. Um I think it probably preceded me marrying or meeting my wife a little bit. So if we talk about myself and other missionaries having the same experience in Atlanta, but coming away with different views, 
um, that that really led me to start asking questions. So I started looking for answers. So I, we had the same experience, uh, and everyone's set up a little bit different way, but I saw things differently. And so I started to do some more formal studying to figure out how things got that way. So, for example, one of my favorite books that explained why things were the way they were in Atlanta was a book uh, at a Princeton Press by Cruz called White Flight. So it, it broke down block by block how Atlanta became a predominantly black city, how poverty was set up, how the politics were created. And it was in such detail and such explanation where I was, and I didn't read this until after I was a missionary, so I'm like finding books that explain experience I had the year before. And it started to make sense. Well, oh, I get it. I really get it. But those guys that were with me at the time that didn't ask those questions, they never got it. Right? And that, a lot of that's because right. I realized that having these experiences unfacilitated or without the contextual education doesn't lead to progress. It doesn't lead to right. learning. So as I started to find the explanations for the experiences I had uh, and things made sense, I realized, oh, if I had known this back then, I could have helped those guys that were with me. I could have been, you know what, what you're seeing, here is how it got this way. Here is why. And they might have come to a different decision. And the more I've learned these sort That's of things and realized other people, yeah, but other people weren't learning that. And I get a little bit more motivated, not just because, I mean, how the world is will affect my children, but I've realized that, that our, our, our perceptions, especially when it comes to race, uh, they matter because they dictate how we vote. They dictate what policies we support, and we don't live in vacuums. So how we live and how we think will affect other people and – and when you're really misinformed about the world, we can make some really bad decisions without being bad or without having ill intent. That's like, I think what motivates right. me the most is I've realized, Hey, I've changed a lot of my views in a huge way. And it's not because I used to be bad. It's just because I, I didn't know. And I don't see so, those messages being communicated to the people that I grew up with. So, but what, what I find interesting about that is that, you know, a lot of, um, not all, but some of my uh, conservative Republican friends uh, or associates um, that I've had conversations with, they tend to reject uh, some of the knowledge that you embrace, uh, you know, about, you know, what, uh, you know, redlining and white flight and segregated schools, uh, whether it be by choice or by demographic neighborhood makeup, et cetera, um, or white flight being one of the things, um, you know, all these various reasons why um, poverty persists um, disproportionately within, African, within a segment of the African-American community. Um, you know, when you come with these reasons, it's like, well, that's just playing the victim. That's just an excuse. Anyone can make it because of, like, you grew up with your values of rugged individualism and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, again, not all, but some, if not many, conservative Republican views that I come across either online or through podcasts or through through associates and friends, you know, it's like they don't want to hear those things, but it seems like for you it was like, okay, I see why. Um, I don't know. How does that, how does that, what I just said, sit with you? <laughs> no, it squares with my experience, meaning like, no, I agree. People seem to push that off, and I think a lot of it has to do 
and, and this is part of what I've actually gone back to school for and tried to work. And what drives me now is trying to find ways to communicate to these people so that maybe they will be more open to these ideas. Or if we can open a dialogue. So if I'm wrong, I want somebody to tell me and explain to me why and how I'm wrong. I'm open to that. I want to know because at the end of the day, I'm, I'm, I am concerned with being right, not just to defend my position, but I want to be on the right side of social issues. I want to be on the right side. And to be quite frank, as a religious guy, I want to be on the right side of God. Right At the end of this day, I do have a belief right. that there's going to be a time when I have to answer for my actions and my thoughts. And I, I and in, in reality, part of this experience in mortality is to we're left to kind of figure it out it, to some extent. So I want to be right. But I, I think what's lacking in so many people's views is real cross-cultural experience, right? So when you come at somebody and say, uh -huh. hey, redlining is how it works, but they haven't really seen or, or dealt with it firsthand. They're all, yeah, whatever. That's an idea. That's a story. That's complaining because we've all met a complainer, right? So we can theorize and put our hands around somebody that's a whiner because we all know them, right? And, so, and this sounds and looks like maybe it's that. So to, to maybe okay. illustrate maybe what I've had some different experience that really solidified this for me is I, I spent almost 10 years living in North Philadelphia. So I lived in uh, maybe for about eight months over by Germantown and then for the rest of the time uh -huh. over in uh, Port Richmond. So almost in that little vortex next to Kensington and North Philadelphia. And my religious right. congregation was, was made up of two groups of people. It was, North Philadelphia, which if you haven't been to North Philly, man, it, it just looks rough, right? When, when you, well, I, I live in California now, and I've been to some what people tell me are bad neighborhoods, and it kind of – I haven't adjusted to it because it doesn't <laughs> look like a rough neighborhood. Everywhere in Philly, right. including the good neighborhoods, look like a rough neighborhood. But, but there are some people, yeah, yeah. so many people that, that are just really struggling just to, just to make it day to day. So half of the people that I worshipped with and that I spent my time with were North Philadelphia. They were black. They were Puerto Rican uh, that have really struggled to make it day to day for generations. The other half were people getting an MBA at Wharton. So especially at that time, Wharton, number one business school in the world. These are guys, they've already been to Wall Street. Right? They've already been there, done well, and now they're coming back so they can get that credential so they can go uh, – basically be Mitt Romney. They want to run a hedge fund. And so these, right. these are people who have access to capital, who are brilliant, and really most of them, they're just good people too, right? So this is what you want. And these two groups came together, and you have people with the most resources that are brilliant and good, and we were trying to find solutions to help people that were struggling, that were in poverty. And you would be amazed at how hard it was even when the poor people wanted the help, they wanted to do better, and we couldn't come up with solutions. So I was meeting poor people right. that weren't whining and complaining, and I was with people who had smarts and money, and we couldn't figure out how to beat the system or make it work for the poor people. Right? And it was a challenge, wow. and we met with racism. You, you, would, you would bring somebody up for an opportunity, and they would get rejected because somebody just looked at them and didn't like the way that they appeared. I mean, that, there's no other explanation right. for that other than racism. Or when you set people up and they just can't sustain any opportunity because the structure isn't there to help them. When it takes more yep. work to get somebody a handout than a job actually takes, so you take the job, but the job doesn't provide enough money to even meet substandard living, there's these bigger challenges. And even when you'd meet the complainer or the whiner, 
I would realize, well, how much would I whine if I've tried? If you try your hardest for years just to make it and it just doesn't work, how long do you keep that up before you give up? And so I had this firsthand experience that then when I combined with the book knowledge that I had to explain how these things got there, things start to click and I go, oh, this is a much bigger deal. And this isn't the message that I'm getting either in the media or even then, quite frankly, in academia. I spent a lot of time in academia with sociologists and people that are trying to explain, like Julius Wilson talking about the cultural effects of poverty. I'm thinking, like, yeah, it's not just culture. It's culture and system. But these are people who yeah, are in gosh. the trenches, right? They're not there trying man. to really system, work that's with my word. Right? I mean, right. if you take, say, Ben Carson. Say Ben Carson, by all uh, great story, brilliant man. I don't align with him politically, but – and I still think he's probably a great person, but I've been with people who maybe started poor, but they haven't been in that world or even touched it in 20 years. Man, a lot changes right. in 20 years, and you forget a lot. You don't feel the same yeah. way when it comes to relating to these issues. And I think for people to really get it into change, you have to have that experience that helps you understand and feel and know, plus the contextual book learning or history or the other academic knowledge that should go with it. Amazing context. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so I want to ask you, um, as we, before we close out here, um, you wrote a, a blog post. I think it was the first blog post by you that I ever read. And it was about uh, you were challenging some of the Trump supporters, and you were basically sharing your experience of what it meant to be a conservative Republican when you grew up. And you were challenging and saying, I don't know if that's what, and I may be wrong. I read it a long time ago, so I'm really paraphrasing <laughs> and, and seeing if my memory is working a little bit, but I know you'll clean it up. But basically what I took away from it was that you were a little disappointed in how the conservative Republicans were being represented or misrepresented through the support of Donald Trump. And so I want to ask you, you know, what are your feelings, um, you know, in this time uh, with Donald Trump being the elected president? I'm not sure. I believe this article came out before he was elected. And, you know, just the whole you know, I guess climate right now, political climate right now with uh, Donald Trump representing the Republican Party. And, you know, I know you grew up Republican, but Donald Trump wasn't necessarily always a Republican. All that stuff that comes with that. If you could just briefly kind of, you know, summarize what your feelings and thoughts were in that blog post and kind of where what you see uh, or what not, not only what you see happening over the next four to eight years, but what you hope will happen over the next four to eight years. Man, that's a lot to chew on. That's a lot. <laughs> that's, that's a yeah, lot, no, I know. That's a lot. That, that, it, I'm, and I'm cool with that. But uh, so, so I'm a registered independent and have been since I moved to Georgia after I was a missionary. Um, I grew up as a conservative Republican, too young to vote, but, you know, it's kind of how you're raised, so that's what you think you are, during the Clinton years. And as a religious person with conservative religious values, uh, we all thought Hillary and Bill were just the worst thing ever. Like the Monica Lewinsky scandal was just such an embodiment of all that was wrong in the world. And, and conservative family religious values were what Republicans stood for. And that that's what we were, we were against this moral decline of civilization. And so that's the context I grew up in. And I, when I first moved to Atlanta, it was during Sonny Perdue's, uh, I think it was his, uh, governor's campaign and one of the platforms in the republican party was was to bring the confederate battle flag 
back to the state flag because it had been removed. They wanted that back on there. And that's what it meant to be a Republican in Georgia was the Confederate battle flag needs to be on the state house. And that, man, that, that terrified me. So I, it wasn't that, hey, here, that wasn't what Republican meant to me in my world. And I really just I couldn't affiliate with that idea of putting that symbol on a representation of our government in our state. So that's when I really realized that government is or not government, but politics are local. So what I thought it meant with this big R Republican is not what it meant everywhere. So it, it really loosened those ties and made me think I need to look at the local context. So if, if we fast forward that on to say Trump and Obama and our current climate, what's going to happen? I'm not sure. And what I hope happen, <laughs> I mean, there's, there's a whole basket of those things. And I, I am really reticent to make any sort of policy predictions, not just because he's unpredictable, but I'm not against uh, somebody that I think, I think many things about him and his character are pretty deplorable. Right. So as I, I I am pretty conservative, what most people think of as conservative when it comes to uh, kind of the rules I live my life by, like the idea that you would cheat on two wives before you marry your third like infidelity is just it, it's horrible, right? There's no way to hurt other people more than in marital infidelity, and he's he seems pretty unrepentant when it comes to that in, in in many sorts of ways. So, all that aside, if he accomplishes some great things, if he repeals Obamacare, but for some reason more people get sufficient health care, I would love that. Do I think that's what's going to happen? I don't know, and I doubt it. But when it comes to race and when it comes to this, I think the past eight years have really demonstrated what I'm afraid is, is well, what I see happening, what there's a historical precedent happening, and what I think more people like yourself and more people like the people in this venue need to do is to speak up is because there is this historical pushback against black progress or against uh, anything that would lead to actual equity or equality and opportunity and rights. Meaning if, if you look through history, even back in the slave days when uh, early colonial Virginia, when people started to become more homogenous is when you started to get these laws that made slavery a race-based rather than economic-based institution, right? Because people started getting right. too close. I mean, too many black people started doing too well. Um, once black people started to mobilize and you have Nat Turner's uh, revolt, you, you have this white, reaction that's when you start that's when you get the fugitive slave laws right? after the civil yep. war and black people get the vote and they start to get participation is when you have the ku klux klan and the end of reconstruction fighting against that so every time there's this move up there's a white lash as, as we've called it now right this pushback and I, and I see that happening with barack obama where there's what looks like some progress and i think now we have this emboldened right wing because that's generally the direction that it comes from but I, I, without politicizing it there's a, there's been a real reaction to black progress because i think my people if we call it that white people uh, even the good ones don't have the perspective or the understanding we truly are as a group so there's always individuals but as a group we're really ignorant to the black experience of how black Americans experience and are treated in this world. We really, really don't get it. 
And because we're so ignorant of black people's reality, we misinterpret what we see going on and we react. And I think our reactions are are just wrong, no matter if they're coming from a place of wanting to help or a political philosophy we think is right. It's just not how it's going. So I, I, I am really nervous for the future of race relations. I think uh, even the good people are starting to get pushed in a bad direction where I see a, a divergence in people seeing eye to eye and equal opportunities and things of that nature. So I'm, I'm a, little, a little nervous. I think we have work to do. Interesting. So you think that Donald Trump wills that much power um, where he, I guess, with, as the people said, the rhetoric during the campaign, it's really emboldening that, um, that fear um, that was, I guess, hidden or, or I, I'm sorry, was always there. Uh, it's the pushback. That's really the best way to say it. So you feel like, um, and this is rhetorical at this point because you said it already, but you feel, I'm just kind of repeating that, you feel like, um, you know, it's real in terms of that pushback and what you know, has, has been called um, white lash. Um, that that's a very real thing and that people who are for equality and for, you know, equal uh, civil and human rights, et cetera, need to have our antennas up to kind of be well, ready to push back and fight back against those things. Um, that's interesting that you say that because, um, you know, that, that's, uh, it's interesting to get that perspective from you, uh, you know, as a European-American man. Um, I guess I'm just um, I'm hopeful, and uh, I know people at times may think I'm naive um, in how I view these things. Um, but you know, time will tell. Um, I, I just tend not to, um, you know, operate from a, a standpoint of fear, so I just won't take that on personally. But I am um, because kind of I guess the, the stance that I've taken with that whole sentiment is that things have always been challenging for. Uh, African-Americans, especially poor African-Americans, um, things have always been challenging, and I don't see why, you know, Donald Trump being elected all of a sudden makes things that much worse. When I read the book, The New Jim Crow, I'm like, I can't even get through it because I'm so disgusted with how poor African-American people are treated by the criminal justice system, and that's been going on, you know, since the end of slavery in, in some fashion. It's, you know, been going on up until present. So always been going on. People have always been getting killed by the police. People have always been getting beat up by the police. African-American people have always been getting beat up and killed by the police disproportionately, because I know it happens to other ethnicities as well, but disproportionately. And, you know, systemic poverty and systemic racism has always negatively impacted African-American people. So I guess my, my pushback that some people may have heard from me in the past or seen me post something on Facebook about or talk on a podcast about it's just that I just feel like that, that sense of urgency should always be there. It should have always been there, and Donald Trump sure. being elected, you know, for me, it just, it just didn't change. I was already kind of in the mindset that we have to continue to chip away at those structural and cultural and political issues. So, um, no, you know, agreed. I, just, I well, just wanted to add that. You know, I just wanted to add that, but go ahead. No, let, let me add that final pushback to your pushback. <laughs> the final okay. part, I, I, I – I agree. I think you're right on those. I think we have to come with this idea of positivity because my life has taught me that people can change in their perception. If I can change and I'm really not that different than people, then everybody else like me can change too or become better as I think it's become better. But where I think there is a call to action, and it's not like Donald Trump has created all this. He is evidence of something that exists already. Um, 
Right. My plea, my plea is to the white masses, right? Because really, you know, black people have always struggled, right? And it's not right that they have had to struggle. And so my call is to the white population to listen and to adjust because the best way to have a holistic change for the better is the people who have the most influence numerically and power and socially are the ones who need to sustain and give that change. And I have concern knowing and I've learned that that sort of change in a positive direction isn't natural and inevitable. It has to be intentional. Meaning if we just sit here and do nothing, we, the white population, if we do what we normally have always done, there will in fact be no change for the better. So I, I think there's this responsibility, there's this need, and it's an urgent need that white people need to listen. We need to do better. We need to know more. And we, we have to be active. Otherwise, things, no matter how positive we are, I mean, black people are resilient as a whole. Uh, Absolutely. It, uh, unnecessarily. And so, I mean, the, I guess right. one good thing with Trump is that one of the failings after the post-civil rights movement is once there had been legal and legislative change, uh, many of us thought the war was over, and we kind of dropped the PR battle of understanding and true awareness to support the white political will to support the final steps to actual equality of opportunity. And we're not there yet. And we're slipping away from that. So that's where my urgency and that's where it's not fear, but it's this drive for urgency that the, the white populace, we got to do better. Otherwise we're, we're just going to have to keep fighting this fight. And I think we can win it. I, I, it can be one. I'm not, I'm not a defeatist. I appreciate that. And, um, you know, I also appreciate you as a European-American uh, male uh, taking that stance and calling out other European-Americans because, you know, one of the other things that I've said in the past is that, you know, with European-Americans being the majority in this country, um, the overwhelming majority in this country, you know, I feel like um, there has to be a level of, of leadership there in terms of making your – this sounds weird the way I'm saying it, but I think people will understand the sentiment – like if I if I if I invite you into my home, I'm wanna I want to make you feel comfortable, and I always urge, or in the past I've had that kind of made that analogy with European Americans that even if you don't understand, um, you know some of the struggles and some of the psychological trauma and generational pass down of that uh, trauma, you know be empathetic, and you know work with African Americans and other uh, ethnic minorities to help them feel comfortable. Um, because, you know, with you all being the majority, you know, I feel like that's just something that, uh, you know, you should take the responsibility in doing. And I, that's kind of what I got whether from what or not you we just stole said. The, um, I'm sorry? Okay, whether or not we stole the house or how we got it, we got the keys to the house now. <laughs> Since we got the keys well, to the house I'm glad now, you added we that have layer. the responsibility of making people feel welcome. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely, and I'm glad you added that layer of, of, of nuance as well. So, um, you know, with that being said, uh, you know, that's our time for today. I really, really appreciate you taking the time uh, to join me. Uh, I, we have to do this again. I have to get you on with uh, my co-host, John Costino, at some point to have a dialogue about a particular topic. Um, I know that you're good at thinking through complexity, and there's certain things um, that I think will take this movement to the next level just in the way we speak it and the way that we say certain things that – um, that we, I feel like we need to do a better job of thinking complexity and speaking complexity and unpacking uh, complexity. And I think that you would be a good candidate to kind of help me go through some of those thoughts I've been developing 
uh, for a long time. Let's do it. Um, so I will be reaching back out to you, man. So I really appreciate it. So really quick, if you could briefly tell our listeners how they can connect with you on your blog, give us your, uh, you know, your website, that would be great. Sure, sure. Uh, the best place to find me is at brohamas.com, and brohamas is B-R-O-H-A-M-M-A-S.com. The email address is brohamas at gmail.com. Uh, if you want to know what that word means, you can go to the website and click around and see if you can figure it out. But, uh, yeah, I'm happy to talk with people. I'm happy. This is this is where my passions lie. I, I really think we can have a better world, and I think that it's not going to happen by magic. We have to do something to make it happen. Do it. I agree. I agree, man. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you joining us, and uh, we'll we'll be talking soon. So, right. with that Thanks, being Scott. said, Take for care. our listeners, I want to. Oh, my my pleasure. Um, and I also want to thank our listeners. Thank you, listeners, um, for joining us uh, for this episode of Perspectives. It's our first Perspectives titled show, um, and a series of guests that I'll be bringing on for them to share what I believe is uh, unique perspectives that they have on life because of their experiences much like uh, Dalen just shared with us. Be sure to subscribe to the Race Haven podcast on iPhone, uh, on your iPhone through the podcast app or st- the Stitcher Radio app for iPhone and Android so that you never miss the dialogue. And if you love this show, please leave us a review on the podcast and Stitcher apps. I want to say that again because no one's left us a review, and I know we have, you know, over the course of the last year, and we just reached a year old, um, we've had thousands of listeners. So if you could please you know, leave a comment, that would really mean a lot to me. Um, And, you know, this will help the show gain more visibility and listeners. And we want to hear from you. You know, we always welcome you to email us your perspectives at solutions at racehavenpodcast.com, and we may get a chance to read a few of them on a future show. Please visit the Racehaven Podcast Facebook page or racehavenpodcast.com and leave comments and questions about today's show. You can also find the older shows, uh, past shows on and the racehavenpodcast.com. I'm sorry, not the, but just racehavenpodcast.com. You can also join our online community by joining Racehaven Community Dialogue Facebook group. If today's episode resonated with you, please share it with your friends uh, on all of your social media, email, text, however you can share, please share. A Racehaven is a safe place for people from diverse eth- ethnic, religious, cultural, and political backgrounds to bring their race-based perspectives, questions, assumptions, frustrations, and experiences to engage in thoughtful, honest dialogue in an effort to transcend race and unify America. Remember, we are all smarter when we think together. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Race Haven Radio Show and Podcast. Be sure to visit www.racehavenblog.com to comment and learn more.